Welcome. This is The Currency. I'm your host, Mike Gast, and this is episode number 57, 57 of The Currency, America's favorite podcast, and not even only America's, Canada's, Austria's, Iran's. <laughs> and I say that because we have listeners from all over the world. I don't know if the country loves the podcast, but gosh darn it, it just feels good to think that way. And I'm really grateful for this audience. So guys, thanks for joining me today. We're going to talk about Kamala Harris and her Kodak moment. Uh, before we get into Kamala, I want to just give a couple more shout outs here. Um, to see a couple more comments. Uh, Pauline Weinberger says, I mean, I don't want to sideline your podcast with F1 talk. So if, you, if you're just joining us, we've been talking about Formula One. Guys, what I do, if you're listening to this podcast, this gets broadcast live on Facebook, or sorry, not Facebook, YouTube. <laughs> this is one of the problems with being live. You make mistakes on air. Uh, this gets broadcast on YouTube live, usually Sundays at 4 p.m. You can jump into the stream. You can participate in the conversation. And then afterwards, I publish it on uh, the various platforms. So we've been talking a little bit about Formula One. Uh, George is saying this is the new F1 podcast. You know, back in the day, uh, I really wanted to do a Formula One podcast. And then I thought about doing a, a Barcelona uh podcast as well, soccer podcast. Yeah, so you can get F1 really cheap on streaming. I've thought about that. And even, you know, if you if you have a VPN, I've done this in the past, didn't used to always do it. But I really liked the BBC's um, Formula One broadcast. So I got a VPN, paid a few bucks a month so that I could VPN in to, I had to spoof that I was from Great Britain so that I could watch the BBC F1 stream. And it was fantastic. Oh, the quality, the quality of commentating was a lot of fun. And yes, Barcelona also got a Kodak moment, no doubt. So what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about Kamala Harris and her Kodak moment. I want to jump into that. But before we do, let's just follow up on a couple of things. I've mentioned Kodak a couple of times. And not last episode, but the episode before, I was talking about Kodak. And I was kind of ranting a little bit about how frustrated I was with Kodak. You know, they got this big $765 million loan from the government. You know, and, and I was just I was just angry because I'm saying I don't know that they deserve it. It's not I, you know, I'm a hometown guy. My, I've done work for Kodak through my uh, various businesses in the past and employers. I used to sell to Kodak, so I, I kind of have a personal stake. I know a lot of Kodakers. I've, I've um, I'm really tied to Kodak in many ways. That said, and and, and I want to see my town Rochester do better. We could use a little cash infusion. We're not very good at finding money and bringing it in into Rochester. We're pretty good at losing people. And we're good at snow plowing because in the winter we get a lot of snow. But other than that, we seem to struggle a little bit. Uh, that said, I was very frustrated. That $765 million was a little bit suspect to me. And, uh, and the reason being is Kodak has not demonstrated an ability to succeed, to lead, to think with any decisiveness, to do anything that's valuable in many, many years. I mean, they've just had flop after flop. So I was just questioning, on one hand, why would the government give them that money? They haven't shown that they deserve it. They don't, and even if it's a loan, uh, they haven't demonstrated that they'd be a safe bet for the American people. This is a, a taxpayer-funded loan. And on the other hand, people are saying, well, I don't think they have any background in, you know, what are they doing with pharmaceutical chemicals? And I, I was actually arguing, well, that, that side I actually get. Kodak is a chemistry company. Even though they were making cameras and so on, they were a chemistry company. Well, last week, and I should have talked about this in last week's podcast, but last week... After this big announcement, there was all kinds of what looked like insider trading. Right before the deal happened, I talked to you about the chairman and some other people jumping in on stock options. That was actually legal to do technically, although the SEC's looking into that. But a number of, uh, a number of, I've got, <laughs> I'm, my office doors are closed. All of a sudden, there's something banging at the door. We have like a five-month-old golden uh, lab, golden retriever puppy and, and she was banging at the doors. She's trying to get in. That's just so funny. She might become part of the show. She's very energetic. So if she gets in here, it's going to be a little ugly. Anyway, uh, there was what looked like insider trading. It looked like a bunch of people jumped on early buys of Kodak stock right before this announcement. People that should not have, people that would only have done that if they had a sense that something was about to happen. Now, you could say that these people were tracking and they noticed the movement of the CEO, the chairman, 
and, and some others grabbing stocks and said, something big's about to happen, let's jump in. Whether that's legal or not, I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily illegal. If you're kind of observing market movements and you're willing to take a gamble, but a lot of these people are really connected. And the argument is that they knew, that they were talking, that there was gossip, that there was you know, back, uh, you know, back, backroom chatter, country club chatter over cigars, and, uh, and some people tried to cash in on this. Now, uh, the SEC has put this under um, investigation, and the government has said, well, you know, we're going to put this on hold until there's a little bit more. We need to do a little bit more research before we hand this money over. So there you go. Kodak at the table uh, from zero to hero and then back down to zero in, in less than a week. That's, <laughs> that's Kodak for you. They couldn't keep their fat mouths shut long enough to get this loan in-house, lock it down, and get the business going. It's just total incompetence. You can call it corruption. You can, yeah, that's fine. But it's incompetence. Let's say you're the folks running the show, and you know that this loan is coming through. Or let's say you're part of that team. Maybe it's, maybe it's. I'm not accusing uh, the executive board of doing this, but I'm just saying if you're in that inner circle, first of all, how did you not keep this under wraps? And second of all, why would you jeopardize this amazing opportunity for your business that was on life support, that was about to get a bullet to the head and be dragged out back and thrown on the pile for a discard later. Why would you jeopardize that by, by talking? You know, loose lips sink ships, so here you are. Now, I, I'm, I'm guessing the Trump administration probably would have let it slide if there wasn't a bit of noise, but it was so public. You know, there was an outcry. It's like, how could they do this? And, you know, shame on the Trump administration. I think... Uh, this was just a bad move. So they they have put the deal on hold. So uh, zero to hero, and then right back down to zero in a matter of seven days. I mean, it's just mind blowing. But that's that kind of proves what I was talking about when it comes to Kodak. So I, again, I'm not trying to be hard on Kodak, but I, I have to be. I feel like I feel like a, a parent with a child. You know, and you you give this kid a hard time. It's like, hey, you can do better than this. Now, obviously, as a parent, you're not going to mock and laugh at a kid who's struggling. Uh, to, to perform. But like, I feel like there's no reason for it. This, this is the thing with Kodak. There's no reason for their performance. It's like I was saying in the pre-stream, there's no reason for Barcelona to struggle other than bad leadership, bad management. You've got all the resources, you've got the history, you've got the know-how, you've got, you've got everything. And uh, you just can't seem to put it together into a winning formula. Well, that's, that's a shame. And you deserve to lose. If that's the case, you deserve what you get. You know, there are good people that suffer hardships they don't deserve them, but they learn to knuckle down and get through them. A team like Kodak lately, I'm sorry. They just have not demonstrated that they deserve the win, and, and they're not getting it, seemingly. So I'd be curious to see what happens. Here's the thing. Let's say that they're going to get that money eventually. Well, if Kodak's already on life support, will they make it long enough to receive the money? And the other thing is if they're not getting the money and they're not sure that they're getting the money, they can't invest. They can't start building up infrastructure. They can't start getting the company ready to like hit the ground running. They've just got to sit and wait. Do they have what it takes? Do they have deep enough pockets? And does the market think that they stand a chance to get this money now? Because if the market thinks they stand a chance to get the money, their stock will float for a while. They'll have some cash to keep things going. And then, you know, hopefully they'll get the cash and, and start working hard like they should be. But my guess is the market's going to be pretty skeptical. The only reason that their stock and the market valuation jumped the way it did is because people thought they're getting government money. It had nothing to do with Kodak. It had nothing to do with how great a company they are. It was just, oh my gosh, Kodak's going to get some money. Let's jump on this opportunity. That's all it was. And I think now that that's highly suspect, that that's in question, you know, th these are fair weather friends. They're going to jump. They're going to jump ship pretty quickly. So I think that Kodak is done for. Honestly, I don't know that they're going to make it. If they were already saying they didn't know that they'd make it that much longer, I can't see how they're going to survive the situation. So we'll have to see. In other news, uh, and you're aware of this, President Trump has been uh, putting his sights on TikTok, the popular video app. Uh, I have to admit, I, I, I downloaded TikTok maybe a year or two ago, was intrigued by it, but was not willing to participate. And not because I thought there might be a Chinese background to it, but more because it just, I just, uh, as a guy in his 50s, didn't think I had what it took to, to, to make it big on TikTok. I wasn't going to dance for the camera and lip sync to some pop tune. It just wasn't my shtick. Um, anyway, 
so Trump has, you know, put, put his sights on TikTok, and this is really the battle with China. Uh, there's this ongoing battle, and it's kind of weird. So TikTok is owned by a company, I've got it written down here, called ByteDance, B-Y-T-E Dance, ByteDance. And ByteDance is a Chinese company. Uh, the concern is that TikTok has gotten so popular, and there's a concern that the Chinese are using it. Someone, I don't know if the Chinese army, Chinese government, whatever, has the opportunity to kind of harvest data out of it. Uh, and that they could use it to get sensitive information about American citizens and uh, use it against us. So uh, this really calls into question, and not just China, but... Um, you know, you've got all these companies and, and what, you know, when a company is founded in China, it, it, it is maybe a little different than when a company, say, is founded in Finland or, or the USA or Mexico or wherever. And here's why. China, being a communist country, made a decision quite a while back that they were going to mix a capitalist economy with a Chinese uh, communist Government that they were they knew that communism essentially planned centrally controlled society was not going to work long term. They knew that they didn't have the resources, the capital, and so on to to do this to to become a great nation, a great power. And so they wanted to leverage the engine of uh, the capital markets to do that. But they didn't want to have total free markets. They didn't want to just let this thing go wild because they knew that probably a free, true free market uh, would undo the totalitarian government style that they have. And so what you'll see with a lot of these big Chinese companies is they are state-owned on some level. It's, it's definitely a business, and it'll have a founder. Or the founder will have a story about how they started from scratch in a garage somewhere and how they become successful over time. But either the, the, the Red Army or other Chinese organs that the Chinese government are invested heavily in these companies. And so what you get with a lot of these bigger Chinese companies is direct ties. It's, it's not like you have to go through multiple shell companies. They've got direct ties back into this totalitarian dictatorship, this party. It's a one-party rule that will use violence and force that, that ethnically cleanses, that, that sterilizes human beings, that forces abortion on people, that will weld doors shut to keep people indoors during a pandemic, will do whatever they have to do for the success of the state and for the people, as it were. And the people really is a code word for the state. And, um, you know, I can't say that other governments aren't willing to do what it takes to keep themselves in power. I'm just saying, when you look at a Chinese company, there is a bit of a material difference than some of these other companies. Now, what gets kind of cloudy for me, and I don't know about for you guys, is the fact that a lot of these companies, whether they're founded in America, whether they're founded in England or Germany or Brazil or Russia or wherever, when they become multinationals, they kind of transcend their governmental jurisdiction. If you're founded in the U.S., but you become this giant multinational, I'm not certain that you're trustworthy on any level. So yes, I think there's a good argument to be made for companies like TikTok that they present a national security hazard and a privacy hazard. Uh, and if we see how warfare is becoming more and more digital as propaganda, misinformation becomes more and more digital and how powerful... I mean, if you look at just domestic media in your own respective country, forget just America, but just like look at domestic media in your country and ask yourself how manipulative that media is. And that's domestic. Now layer in international, I mean, it just gets really confusing. If you look at uh, Google that was founded in the U.S., that they're very willing to abide by the Communist Party of China's dictates. They'll cleanse information, they'll bury information, they will surface other information that's more pleasing to that government. Why? Because they want to be able to do business there. And there's pressure. There's pressure on these companies to do the bidding of these giant states. So uh, we've got this thing with TikTok. You know, I, I, people are all over the place on this. And, and I don't think there's an easy answer. It's a bit of a mess. But some are saying, oh, yeah, well, Trump, he just got a profile on uh, Triller, which is TikTok's rival. He's just trying to use his executive power to hurt a, a rival company. You know, people are saying, well, he's trying to invest and make money off of it. Uh, and, and I get that. Like, I do understand that. And I do, I'm not quick to defend what Trump is doing on this. I, I think it's a really confusing issue. And I guess that's my point here. My point isn't to say that TikTok's bad or that Trump is 
wrong or the opposite of either or that TikTok's good and Trump's right. I just, I'm just trying to say it's really confusing. It's really complicated. And I'm not sure how a country, how a government, how a people, a society navigates the world we're in right now when it comes to things like social media, connectivity, personal information, and so on. It's uh, becoming harder and harder to just have reasonable, thoughtful, logical laws and regulations on the books. And um, it's kind of crazy. I'm going to look at a couple of the comments on this one. By the way, before I do that, uh, so right now, Microsoft is in talks to try to buy parts of TikTok. I'm assuming the parts that would interface with uh, a North American audience. Microsoft is trying to buy TikTok, essentially, for the U.S. market, maybe maybe the West. I don't know if it's just the U.S. market. We'll see if that happens. I'm a little, you know, I don't like seeing the government use such a big stick when it comes to business. I don't like seeing the government come in and and really kind of do this political leverage thing uh, when it comes to companies. But on the other hand, there is a strategic issue and there, there are some concerns. And if, if the government doesn't step in, you kind of are in this situation like we've been in lately where all of our stuff has been out, offshore, outsourced. We're not capable of doing a lot of things. And when there is a crisis, uh, we're kind of left, you know, in trouble and not able to make ventilators or what or, or P90 whatever masks. I mean, it's just really difficult. So it's, it's a tough one for me. I, there's no clear answer as far as I, for, for me. Let's look at, um, let's see what we got here. So Pauline is saying, uh, so Pauline's saying for Kodak, maybe another camera company would buy them. Maybe, I don't know why. I mean, there was talk years ago, Pauline, that, that if Kodak were to sell anything, they would sell their brand, that made the Kodak brand, that nobody wants to buy their intellectual property. Nobody wants to buy their facilities. No one wants to buy their equipment or gear. They really just want the name. So I, I would see that. I could see somebody saying, we're buying the Kodak brand. It's kind of nostalgic, kind of like Polaroid. You know, it, it just gives you a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. Uh, but but would anybody want their formulations? Maybe. I mean, maybe there's something with Kodak film where someone wants the intellectual property, the right to kind of produce some specific Kodak stuff, like the uh, the 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 uh, Kodak movie making film. Um, you know, that was kind of a thing for a while. There might be some things that people would say, I want the formulation. But I think really, at the end of the day, Kodak, if they sell anything, it's going to be their brand. And when they do that, the actual company, the publicly listed company, it's gone. There's nothing left. All they have is their brand right now. And that's taken a beating. So it'd be interesting to see. Pauline says, I don't get TikTok. And that's how I know I'm getting old. Oh, now, come on, Pauline. If I, uh, if I have inferred correctly from comments you've made, you're a young mother. You're like probably half my age. So you've got uh, maybe not half, but close. You can't tell me you don't know about TikTok. Now, now here's what will happen. When your kids start to get into adolescence and the teen years, you're going to be aware of all these kinds of things. I was on Snapchat way before anybody else. Because why? Because my kids exposed me to it. You know, my kids were talking about Snapchat and I'm like, I'm going to get a Snapchat account. And I bump into people in their, you know, at the time in my mid forties, late forties, I forget how old I was. And they're like, holy smokes, you're on Snapchat? Like, you're a baller. And I was like, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm so cool. But the reason was not because I'm so cool. It's because my teenage boys were on it. And I'm like, okay, I want to check this thing out. And I wasn't snooping them. Like, I wasn't like, what are you up to on Snapchat? Yeah, there's only so much you can control. But I would find out about things through my teenagers. So there is a phase where you kind of leapfrog a little bit if you're paying attention and you care. But you know what? I think there's a blessing in being older and a little oblivious to some of this stuff. Because let's, let's just admit it. This stuff is wood, hay, and stubble. It's all going to burn. And I don't mean that sarcastically or negative. It's just, it's just like not important. Like how important is a TikTok video to your life in the, in the end? Are you going to sit in the old age home reminiscing about that killer TikTok account you had? Of course not. You know, what you're going to remember is some amazing book you had or a lovely bottle of wine that you shared with somebody that you love or, or raising children with your spouse or some professional accomplishment. You're going to think about the, the things in your life that have a little bit of substance and some meaning. You're probably going to have some regrets too. You're going to sit and say, I wish I did this or didn't do that. I mean, that's part of life. But um, these, these things like TikTok, I think it's a blessing sometimes to be oblivious. Uh, people act like, well, how could you, you know, you're so out of the loop, you know, this fear of missing out, FOMO. It's like, dude, Go out and take a walk. Smell the air. Smell the pavement after a fresh rain. Go, go look at the sun 
uh, streaming through some leaves in, in, the, in the woods. That's living. That's living. Just sit in your backyard for 10 minutes. No phone, no nothing. It's like, that's what it means to be human. Anyway, and that and watching the currency live stream. This is important. This you will remember. I triple guarantee you that you will remember this. <laughs> You'll feel like I was there at the beginning before Mike got arrested and was brought up on charges. <laughs> oh my gosh. Let's look at some more. Uh, George is also saying no TikTok on my side too. Now, is that by choice, George, or meaning just you don't, you don't get it? And I think there's an age group thing. I mean, I, I, TikTok is fascinating. I've watched some TikTok videos. You can go on YouTube and, and people will do TikTok video compilations. So I don't even, like I downloaded the app and I'm like, uh, too confusing and I just deleted it, which is good. But I, I was like, I don't think I'm going to start a, a, an account with this. That said, um, you can watch TikTok compilations. And about a year or two ago, I was watching those. Just They were kind of funny, but uh, I got over it pretty quickly. Pauline says, we do security cameras and there are some Chinese cameras that will not be supported because they have backdoors built in by Chinese government. Now you're in Canada, see? So this is, um, so you're saying your company does security cameras and there's some Chinese cameras. Yeah, I remember back in the day when uh, Lenovo bought IBM's laptop line and I was like, this can't be good. You've got some company in China providing uh, like a line of, you know, acquiring IBM's laptop line, which tons of people use for business. There's, you, you tell me there's not gonna be a backdoor. It is, it is problematic. Uh, Pauline says, like hike, hike vision, hike vision. So that must, is that one of the, that must be one of the, the brands you're talking about. George says, as a European, you can decide if you want the USA or China to spy on you. See, yes, that's it, George. You get, you get, what a, what a great position to be in. You see, in the US, we really only get to choose if China spies on us or not. Maybe Israel once in a while, maybe a little bit of Russia. If you're, if you're to listen to the news, oh my God, Russia's like, you know, they're in a, they've, got, they've got KG, KGB agents in every shrub outside your house with listening devices. They're, you know, certainly going to misinform us. And I, for all I know, all my, all my neighbors are Russian sleeper agents. But um, yeah, we don't get that choice. You, you get the benefit of choice. That's one of the wonderful things about being European. You get to choose the finest of all things. You get to choose either American imperialism or Chinese imperialism. And to be fair, and I'm not taking a shot at you, George, because you know I love you, my brother, but the European Union's a bit of an empire too. There's a little bit of imperialism going on there. I kind of feel like the European Union was this, hey, America's got an empire going. Back in the day, the Soviet Union, they've got an empire going, although they always talked about how the Americans were these imperialist pigs and they were these wonderful people of democracy. But you had the Soviet Union empire, you had imperialism, you had the American imperialism, you've got the ascendant Chinese imperialism. I feel like the Europeans are like, hey, we kind of need to have a little bit of, a, of an empire too. How do we do it in a way that's polite? Like we don't want to, you know, and really what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a German imperialism. It's, 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 it's what Germany wants. I, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, George, but I would say that a lot of the, um, uh, the European Union is kind of influenced by Germany and Germany's interests and desires. So anyway, I'd love to hear your feedback on that. Um, let's see, Pauline says, I downloaded TikTok, but it's just a waste. It's just a time waste, like YouTube in its infancy, short, silly videos. I like YouTube for learning, long form interviews or learning to fix something. Yeah, YouTube's fantastic. The only thing I, the only beef I have with YouTube is the more I watch stuff, the more its algorithm tries to serve me up what it thinks I want, and then I get access to fewer and fewer things. So I'm never really surprised. Like you kind of open up your home screen. I'm never delightfully surprised like, oh, this is really refreshing. This is very interesting. Uh, and so if I'm doing research like on Kamala Harris, it thinks I want all kinds of Democrat um, political you know, commentary because that's what I've been looking at for the live stream and, and that's not the case. So it is what it is. Hey, a welcome to Meme 5. He says, ha. Well, well, ha, and welcome. I'm not sure what the ha is for, but glad to have you along. And uh, George says, confessions of a marketing guy starting soon. <laughs> That's so funny. All right. Uh, and then just a couple more comments. We'll jump into Kamala Harris. Uh, Pauline says, EU is the federal government. The countries are like state governments. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's a similar concept. And then George says, we are too weak, unfortunately, too weak to have empire. Well, 
That wasn't always the case. Austria had a fine empire. Uh, Germany had a bit of an empire. England had a fine empire. And uh, France, Germany, uh, all these countries, Spain. Oh, my gosh. You go to Spain. You know, Americans, we don't really learn a lot about Spain. For us, kind of history starts sometime around the Revolutionary War for America, the 1700s. Then it just jumps forward to the Civil War. And then it just jumps forward to World War One. And World War One, we just kind of touch it real quick. And it's all about World War Two. Like, like it's it's kind of the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War Two. That's that's the history that we that's the history of the world. That's kind of like for us the history of the world, which is uh, which is just embarrassing. But uh, when we were traveling in Europe, you realize the scope of the of the Spanish Empire. You know, was it King Philip? Uh, what was the king's name in in um, in Spain, but the, and the reason I say it is you see the wealth. When you, when you go throughout the major cities in Spain, you, in some of the smaller cities, you see the wealth. And, and I'm talking wealth from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, just, just amazing public works and, and beautiful architecture. And so you start to realize like the Spanish empire, it was the bomb. And we don't really learn much about that. We, yeah, we learned like somehow the Queen of England uh, somehow overcame the Spanish Armada in some famous naval battle where she essentially decided to do nothing, which was really smart as opposed to trying to meet them head on. And long and short of it, she outsmarted them or got lucky. But um, yeah, Pauline says weaker without Britain. Yeah, that's true. All right, let's jump into... Let's jump into a little bit about Kamala Harris. There's a few things that I want to pull out about Kamala. or uh, Yeah, Kamala. I think that's how you say her name. It's not Kamala, and it's not Kamala. It's Kamala. Kamala. That's what we, were, that's what we learned this week by uh, Tucker Carlson's mistakes. He got chided for not saying her name correctly. So there's a few things I want to talk about regarding Kamala. First of all, I want to talk about um, what, what's Kamala's brand? You know, what is what is Kamala Harris's brand. We talk about branding all the time. I talk about it. I talk about branding as kind of this idea of promise and expectation. You know, when a company or an individual has a personal brand or you've got a product that's a brand, you know, it makes a promise. That's really what the brand is. It's distilled down. It makes a promise. There's a certain promise uh, buried inside a brand. And that promise is kind of coincides with an expectation that the market has. And I look at Kamala Harris and I like really struggle to figure out what is her promise? What is the promise that Kamala makes? Now, you can listen to what she says and then you can look at what she does and they're two different things. And, and, and um, I think Hillary Clinton struggled from the same problem, which is what is her brand all about? And, and I think this is an interesting thing and I'm not going to go too long with this. I want to just use Kamala Harris a little bit as a foil or as an example to help us think about the, you know, the ways that we approach things uh, and some of the dynamics that are going on in the world around us. But if you look at her, you look at her brand story, she talks about being this little girl that had to be bused to school and how she got opportunity because she's, she's African-American. Some of the African-American community pushed back and said, you're no Afro, Afro-American. I believe she's got a, 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 a black father of Jamaican, like from Jamaican descent or Caribbean descent. And I think she has an Indian um, mother and not American Indian, I believe uh, Indian from India. And uh, so she has this, she's a person of color, but she's kind of claiming to be an African-American. And some people are like, yeah, you're not really an African-American. Who cares? I don't really care about all that. Clearly she's a person of color, but she's used that kind of intersectionality. She's used that identity politics. You know, I was this poor black girl I had to be bused to school. All these programs, progressivism, et cetera, have really helped me become who I am. And I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to fight for people of color. I'm going to fight for justice. I'm going to fight for government programs that help people succeed and so on. And that's kind of been Kamala's story. You know, like I was this poor kid. I was afforded opportunities through wonderful government programs. And now I'm here to serve the world. I'm here to be the servant of the people and to help make a just, fair world through government. Now, when she ran for office, she was highly unpopular. When she, I mean, what I mean by that is when she ran for the uh, nomination for, from the Democratic Party, she was highly unpopular. And there was a real reason, and we touched on this earlier in the stream, and that is that her brand story does not line up with her actions. And this is a, this is a real 
branding issue. She has a brand integrity issue. When I, when I advise my clients and when I talk to people starting businesses, et cetera, I tell them, look, you have to choose a position. You have to take a position. You, 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 you have to take a position and you have to take it strongly. And you're going to benefit from this because there's a halo effect. So if you plant your flag and say, we're the low cost leader, we're the cheapest option out there. If that's your, and I don't advise that, but if that's your strategy, take that position. If people believe it and they see you living it out and you have integrity, like you say you're the low cost leader and you are low cost, people will start to assume other good things about you. They're going to say, oh, well, they're probably efficient at what they do. They're probably easy to work with. Like they just assume good things. If you do one thing really well, there's a halo effect and you benefit from that. But you've got to have a position because people have to be, people have to place you in their mind. Uh, which one is uh, tastes great? Which one is less filling and all this kind of stuff? So that's branding kind of 101. It's, it's brand positioning. And, and, and Jack Trout wrote a good, good book on positioning. It's the classic. And he talks about there are really only two positions. And I agree with Jack. It, it's, you're either number one or you're positioning against number one. And it's not bad to position against number one. I've helped a lot of clients position against number one in a very effective way. You can, there's great ways to do that. Being number one is great, but it's not, you don't have to be number one to really succeed. In fact, sometimes having a big number one is great so that you can position against them and take advantage of them. But Kamala Harris, like, what is her position? So the problem is, for often for clients and people that I advise, they, they want to take a position that they can't deliver on. Well, we're the premier brand. We're the premium, so, you know, whatever. They want to be, let's say they want to be number one. We're, gonna, we're number one. That's how we want to brand and position. It's like, okay, I understand that you want to have high quality branding. I, I understand that you want it to look premium and top notch. But if you're just getting started out and you've only got $100,000 to work with and you're up against an $8 billion uh, con conglomerate that's got the number one position, there's no way that you can position as number one because here's what happens. You lose integrity. And what I mean by that is you're making promises that you can't keep. You're making promises that you can't keep. And what happens is the market will give you a little bit of grace. There's a, a period of time, usually for clients, I'll say a year and a half to two years. You can take a position, and, and if you can deliver on that position with, say, within two years, you're fine. But if you can't deliver on those promises in that period of time, people start calling BS. They're just like, I don't believe it. And you actually damage your brand because you are out of integrity. Not only have you fallen short, it's not that people are disappointed. They don't trust you anymore because you're, you're a liar, in essence. You don't tell the truth. And so when I look at someone like Kamala Harris, on one hand, she's saying that she's this kind of progressive, thoughtful, kind person who struggled herself and wants other people to, to thrive and succeed. And she wants to address these big, bad guys out there that are hurting the little man. But when you look at her life and you look at what she's done, she's been treacherous to the little man. I mean, I don't have to get into all this, but you guys probably real, you've heard these stories. Like when she was uh, prosecutor general in, in, for the state of California, she was threatening, and I don't know if she actually did, but she, I think she was putting parents in jail for their children's truancy. For those of you who don't know the word truancy, truancy is like if a kid doesn't go to school. So children have to go to school. If they don't go to school, they're called truant. It's truancy, and they have truant officers back in the day that would go looking for kids that were not at school and grab them by the ear and bring them into school. So Kamala Harris used this kind of progressive logic to say, if a child is not in school, they're not getting an education. And not having an education, a child that doesn't get an education, that's a crime. It's a crime because a child that doesn't get an education doesn't have a chance. Maybe true, maybe true. But then she leapt to, well, that's a crime. If a child doesn't get a chance, that's a crime. And so I'm going to hold the parents accountable for that crime. If the kid isn't going to school, they're getting screwed out of their whole future. That's a big deal. I'm going to grab their parents and throw them in jail. And she bragged about this. I, I, there's a video of it. You can watch it. She bragged about it. In fact, she's in, in, the, in the talk, she kind of laughed. She laughed like nonchalantly. And she's like, oh, yeah. She goes, you know, as the attorney general or prosecutor general, whatever her role is, you know, I get this badge, like kind of like a cop badge. And that badge is on my letterhead. She said, I sent a letter to every family uh, under her jurisdiction. I don't know if it was the whole state of California. I can't remember if it was the state of California or if it was Los Angeles, whatever it was. And every family got this letter saying, if your kids don't go to school, I'm throwing your ass in jail. <laughs> it was like brutal.
Well, here's the thing. Whose families, what, what class of children are truant? It's usually not the upper class. It's not the wealthy. They're going to private schools. They're, it's a country club. Why wouldn't they go to school? They love it. You know, their boyfriend, girlfriends are there. They get to drive up in their, you know, sports cars. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like an idyllic high school situation. So these kids are rarely truant. And they want to get into good colleges. I mean, you know, there's all these expectations. They, they want to do well. Even if they've got bad attitudes, these kids, they're going to they're gonna go to school. They're going to drink and smoke pot. They're going to get away with it. Mommy and daddy are going to just pay away the problems. But the kid's going to go to school. They're not going to be truant. And if they're truant, you got one kid or something. It's, not, it's like really a rough case. And it's not the upper middle class or even the lower middle class. And, and it's not even really the working class, although you do get some truancy in the working class. It's really the poor that are affected by this. It's the, it's the inner city kids work, living in, in the hoods and the ghettos and so on. It's the poor kids that don't have a mother and father in the home. Often they're not even living with their own parents. It might be with a grandparent or an uncle. Uh, they might be living with someone that's not even blood, family. They're not getting uh, proper bathing facilities. They're not getting proper nutrition and food every day. They're out at night. They're mixing it up with drug dealers. The str- I mean, these kids are on the streets. This is, this is a group of kids that are screwed to begin with. And so, and so their parents, sometimes their parents, are, are their, their mother might be only 15 years, 16 years older than them. Uh, their mother might also have little babies that they're taking care of and have their hands full with no husband. They might be living on public assistance. Their parents often are abusing things like drugs and alcohol. I mean, this is the group of people where you see a lot of truancy. And, and, you, and why wouldn't you? These poor kids, they're behind the eight ball. And so what Kamala Harris does is she comes and says, well, I'm going to throw these parents in jail. It's like, how, how compassionate is that? How progressive, how kind is that? You're going to punish the very people that are just buried under generations of screwed up, screwed up leftist ideology made law. You've created an environment where people have these totally messed up lives. You've destroyed the black family. The Democrat Party did that, by the way. You've destroyed the Black Party through segregation and all this kind of stuff. Then you threw all kinds of money at them through the Johnson administration, which drove the men out of the families because you couldn't get the money if you were a normal family struggling. You had to be really screwed up to get the government money. So people are like, fine, let's get the government money. And now you've got a drug problem. You've got an alcohol problem. You've got families with kids with multiple parent fathers and one mother. It's just it's just such a mess. Kamala Harris laughing in front of the camera says, yeah, I'm going to throw those people in jail. I want to scare them, scare them. So you've got a brand problem. There's a lack of integrity in the brand. I want to jump into the comments here real quick uh, because we've got, um, we've got some good discussion here. So Pauline, we'll run through a few of these. Pauline says she is a woman of color. That's what Democrats see in her. Absolutely. And then we're going to get to that in a second. They picked VP so late so there wouldn't be as much time for her to tank the vote. Well, we'll see about that. She still has, they still have to win against Trump. And I, I, I don't know if they can. George, ha ha. I, I had with my mom a deal. As long as I am good in school, it was my choice how often I got to go to school. <laughs> and you turned out just fine, right, George? Are you going to do the same thing with your kids? I'm just curious. If you're able to work that deal out with your mom, will you do the same thing with your children? Now, Pauline says that uh, Kamala joked about putting them in jail. Forget if they did go to jail. She also held evidence that could free innocent people. Yeah, this is the thing. I mean, this was a nasty person. I say was. I think she still is. She's, she, she was nasty. She was a prosecutor, and she was a mean one. She was not a gracious, kind prosecutor. She wasn't interested in justice. She wasn't interested in mercy. She wasn't interested in using the law to help people thrive. And she wasn't even doing it. You, you could make the argument, well, you know, she was in the pocket of the whites. She was, the, she was the, you know, the, the, the guard dog of the elites, the attack dog of the elites, and she was keeping all the white. She was just nasty. I don't know that she, I, I think she's just trying to juice the numbers to make her numbers look good. It didn't matter white, black, green, blue, purple. She just wanted to thrive. She's a political actor. That's the thing. And I don't mean actor isn't a faker. I mean, she's just a political animal. This is Kamala, and we're not, I'm not going to get into it in this podcast, but there are questions about how she was able to get her early on positions, how she, she rose up. And you can go, oh, Mike, that's so sexist to bring some of this. It's true. It's just, it just is what it is. The people that she's accused of doing favors for, that they, they've come out and said, oh, yeah, uh, we, had a, we had a relationship and I helped her out. You know, whatever. That, that's not what the podcast is about. But where I'm going with this is to say there's a brand issue here. 
and she's out of integrity. Um, Kamala says, I think she, or sorry, Kamala, sorry, Pauline says, I think she was in, uh, she was DA in San Fran. I, you might be right. Yeah, I looked it up before, but you know, whenever I get in front of the camera for live stream, some of these facts just go away. George, yeah, they picked her because she's a woman of color and playing ball with the donors, really sad. And I want to talk about this idea of a woman of color. Pauline, the real sad part is if Joe wins, she'll be president in no time once they realize Joe should be in an old folks home because his brain is failing. And I, I agree. I mean, I, I kind of, this is uh, very interesting. Very interesting. I, there's a lot of, let, let's jump to that. I, I want to, um, I was going to talk about it, something else. I'll get back to that. But let's talk about this issue of why they picked her. Why did they pick Kamala Harris? And I think that there's an issue. Um, I think that there's an issue with the Democrat Party. Uh, and that is, there's some cynicism here. The, the, you know, it, I, it's just crazy to me. If you go back to the Trump-Hillary, the Trump-Clinton, I'll, I'll use last names, Trump-Clinton election, you had the Donald and you had, you had Hillary duking it out. Hillary, Hillary was a very cynical candidate. Now, now Trump, I, and I, this is not an apology for Trump. I'm not, oh, Trump's the best thing. I, I was not happy with him as a candidate. But the thing about Trump was he, he really stood for something. And I, I don't mean like righteous. I just mean from a branding perspective, Trump stood for something. And his kind of brand and his promise was, I'm going to drain the swamp. I'm the outsider. I'm the, I'm the dark horse. I'm going to come in. I'm not in anybody's pocket, Republican or Democrat, which that's not necessarily true, by the way. I'm just saying this is the brand. Don't take me as saying this is true about Trump. I'm saying this is his brand. His brand was I'm an outsider. When I come in here, I'm going to clear it out. It's not fair how the government's been treating you, the little guy. It's not fair that the government's letting in Mexicans to steal your job. It's not fair that China's taken away all the jobs. It's not fair that you know we're putting the environment over the well-being of our people that make beautiful, beautiful coal, beautiful coal power. And, uh, you know, so he was saying that kind of stuff. His whole brand was, I'm a dark horse outsider. I'm going to eliminate the administrative state. And I'm going to fight for you, the little guy. I'm going to be your champion. And he was the only one saying that. And he was saying it in a very aggressive and unique way. Everybody else is kind of business as usual, just trying to be a nice suit and a nice talking point. And, you know, Ted Cruz liked the Constitution. And Marco Rubio was trying to be that classic, you know, I'm a hawk, but, uh, but I'm from Cuba. And it was boring. And then you got Hillary Clinton on the other side. Well, Hillary was a very cynical choice. She was just this kind of, she, she was a political operative. She'd been around. It was her turn. The Clintons had tons of money. They were well-connected. It's like Hillary was the choice, but she was not an inspiring choice. And even the way the party chose her, I mean, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders was looking really strong. Bernie Sanders captured the imagination of the left. Uh, and they used the political machinations of the party and some um, arcane uh, rules to kind of bump Bernie off to the side and give it to Hillary. And and the voting showed it. I mean, there was kind of acting like it was a shoe-in that Hillary was going to win. Black voters were underwhelmed. Black voters did not like Hillary. And she tried to come in and she used her little, you know, sing-songy, you know, she's going to talk black when she's with the black folks. And then she's going to try to talk corporate when she's with the finance people and so on. Uh, but I feel that Kamala is a very similar choice. She's a cynical choice. She was unpopular. She was unpopular. And yet at the same time, they said to themselves, well, Joe's got to have a woman. I, I, so first of all, I don't think they wanted Joe. I think they ended up with Joe. They didn't want him. Obama even tried to hint like, hey, Joe, you don't have to do this, Joe. Like hint, hint, like don't do this, Joe. They didn't want Joe, but they ended up with Joe. Again, because I think they got nervous about Bernie taking over the party. So they get Joe. They don't really want him. And they're thinking, all right, well, it's a formula. You know, we've got to appease certain groups. So we've got to have a woman. And when Joe won, well, Joe's this old white guy. Black Lives Matter happens. I think before Black Lives Matter, it was going to be Joe. And it was going to be, um, uh, shoot, I'm going to go blank now. The old lady, uh, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> The old lady. Oh, my gosh. Cancel culture. Look out, guest, and they're coming for you. I think it was going to be Biden-Warren. Really, honestly, that's what I think was going to happen. But I think one, once uh, Black Lives Matter blew up, they said, well, we've got to have a woman of color. 
And they looked around. Now, what's interesting to me is they had a lot of different choices, but they went with Kamala Harris. And to them, it's just formulaic. It's this very cynical thing. It's like, we just need someone that fits the bill. Now, here's what's really interesting, to me at least, about Kamala Harris and the choice that uh, the Democratic Party. And that is that they had an opportunity to do something really imaginative. You've got Joe Biden, who's, who's a joke. He's a joke. He was a joke way before Obama picked him as VP. I remember him having to bow out for being, uh, for plagiarizing and so on. I mean, Joe's kind of this gaff-prone knucklehead. And um, so they, they picked Joe Biden. Okay, now you've got a, an opportunity. There, there are some other black women, uh, Latino women, whatever, that are fascinating. Why didn't they pick someone like AOC? Why didn't they pick someone? There was, um, there's a black woman down in Georgia. Uh, what is her name? I'm going to look it up. Black politician, Georgia, if I can find her. Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams, really charismatic, interesting. You could see the media kind of plumping for her, saying, oh, she'd be great there, showing her kind of this heroic poses, these different op-ed pieces on her. She's pretty leftist, too. I mean, she's, but, you, but they went with Kamala. And here's, here's what I think is going on. I think that the Democrat Party is in the midst of a fight for its own soul. There's a civil war happening in the Democrat Party, the Democratic Party. You've got your classic uh, left-leaning Democrat liberals, these, these people that are connected to finance and corporations and publicly traded businesses and boardrooms, big money. You're talking like the Clinton-style Democrats. And th these folks are still running the ship. Their hand is still on the wheel. You've got your Nancy Pelosi's of the world, your Chuck Schumer's of the world, your Joe Biden's, your Obama's of the world. They wanted a candidate that protects them because they're busy battling the genie that they've let out of the bottle. You've got this other part, this super progressive, socialistic, Marxist part of the party. These are the Bernie Sanders and the AOCs and the Stacey Abrams of the party. And the party's getting ripped apart. They're battling for their soul. Now, what they did is they allowed all this stuff to surface. They allowed the genie out of the bottle, the socialist, communist, Marxist BS, because it served their desire to destroy Trump. They, 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 it made, you know, anything that makes Trump look bad. So you let the AOCs run, you let the Stacey Abrams run, you let the Ilhan Omars and all these folks go off at the mouth and just say all this kind of un-American crap because it undermines Trump and it attacks the Trump supporters. But at the end of the day, what has, ends up happening is you have Frankenstein's monster. If you know the real story of Frankenstein's monster, the monster is not named Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein's monster. It's Dr. Frankenstein creates a monster. And what does that monster do? That monster kills Dr. Frankenstein. And I think that's what the Democrat Party is up against right now. It has let a genie out of the bottle. It's created a monster. And that monster is burning down cities. It's destroying small businesses. It's attacking just honest people. It's attacking Democrats. It's attacking... It's, it's just attacking anybody that just doesn't, you know, pick up a baseball bat and join the mob. And that's this Marxist intersectional mob of ne'er-do-wells that just want to destroy the country. They, they don't want to make it better. They want to burn it to the ground. I'm not talking about people that want real reform. There are people that are saying, oh, burn it to the ground. And what they're really saying is, I want extreme reform. I want the financial markets reformed. I want these corporatists... Uh, entities that are sucking up to the government, getting all kinds of opportunities from the government and, and corporate welfare. I want that, you know, aggressively reformed. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. I'm talking about people that just hate America. They don't want to work. They haven't been able to be successful in the society that we've built. And they just want to burn it down because they, it's like, I can't win the game. So I want to destroy the game. I can't, I can't seem to, I can't seem to land on park place or boardwalk. So you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to upend the table and just Knock the game everywhere. So I think what's happening is the party is internally going through a battle. And I think that a Kamala Harris pick is that staunch, old guard Democrat saying, look, we need somebody out there that the Wall Street Journal will be happy with, that the law and order people will be happy with, that will be a prosecutor, that will be aggressive, that's progressive and so on, but is, is, is not a bleeding heart Marxist is not a militant Molotov cocktail-wielding idiot like an Ilhan Omar or a um, AOC.
Will this work for them? I don't know. I think it's going to backfire. But I think that's why Kamala's the pick. I think I think I don't think she's an attractive. I don't mean physically attractive, although she seems kind of harsh. But you know, look, she's a woman in her mid fifties, and she has to paint her eyebrows on. And you know, age takes its toll. Look at me. I mean, I'm I'm a very beautiful man. I think we all know that. But uh, you know, I got a couple of gray hairs, and um, top of my head's a little shinier than it used to be back when I was a young fellow, a, a young a young whippersnapper with a with a pretty cool car and a mullet. <laughs> Oh, the 80s. You guys, if you weren't in the 80s, what a, what a decade. What a decade. Uh, we had wine coolers in the 80s. That, that's one downside. But other than that, it was pretty, pretty rad. Let's look at a little bit more here, what we got in some, some of our cl- uh, comments. Pauline says, so basically Kamala or that other woman, not Tulsi, I forget her name. Yeah, I think Stacey Abrams, who we're talking there. George says, of course, they wouldn't pick Bernie. Tulsi would have been a woman of color, and she would have got the left to swallow the Biden pill. Yeah, she would have. I think so. You know, they could have even picked someone. What about Michelle Obama? I mean, she's not an ideologue in the sense that she's in politics, but she is an ideologue. She's got a personality. I'm glad they didn't. I'm, I, honestly, I'm glad they didn't pick like an Oprah or a um, uh, Michelle Obama, because I think I think the, the charismatic power that those people bring to the table. I don't like either of them. And I think Michelle Obama, like, you know, she made comments about how she's ashamed of America, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't respect her. So I, it's not like I would, have, I would have been excited, but I would have been worried. If they pick someone like her, I would have thought, oh, we're screwed on the right. We're screwed. Because this is somebody that people are going to say, you know what, I'm tired of all the fighting, the rancor, the bitterness. I, I, and I like Michelle Obama. She was a good lady. She's stylish. She has a nice smile. You know, like there's a PR machine around people like that. And, um, and she doesn't have the baggage that someone like a Kamala has. I mean, Kamala's got a lot of baggage. It's going to be really interesting to see debates uh, where these folks have to fight it out. I just cracked my knuckles, by the way. Bad habit. Apologize. Um, yes. So let's see here. Which, uh, George says, which soul in the Democrat Party? Now, I'm talking about there, there's a fight for the soul of the Democrat Party. He's saying, which soul? Very good. I like that, George. <laughs> let's, but let's, let's assume the best. You know, uh, the Democrats, um, if any of you are watching and you are a Democrat, any of my listeners or watchers are Democrats, please know that I love you as a person. I, I don't understand. Uh, I, I, I don't get um, how a mature adult can truly be a Democrat and I don't mean Democrat like, well, I'm just like sixth generation. I don't really think about it. I mean, like, how can you really be a progressive? How can you look at the world around you and think progressivism is the answer? And I think there's only one way that that can happen. And that is if you make a cartoon out of every. If you, if you look at the right kind of through a cartoon lens, oh, they're just a bunch of race baiting bigots, a bunch of fascists. And like, if you're that simplistic in the way that you look at the other side, then I could see where you go, well, I'm just not going to leave my party. I don't know how you look at the stuff that's been going on on the left, the Antifa stuff and just all this, all this, and, and just go, no, I'm good with, I'm good with Marxism. I'm good with, you know, intersectionality and all this kind of just bizarre, you know, children, uh, being transgender, you know, children being subjected to transgender, uh, hormone therapies. It's just, it's just insanity. I don't know how anybody looks at that and goes, yeah, this is good. This is real good. I love it. Uh, yeah. So there's that. Uh, Pauline says the left sole, as in the left shoe. Um, that one that was the CEO of Dell or HP. Oh, uh, Pauline, wait, who was that? Geraldine Ferraro. Does that sound familiar? Was it Geraldine Ferraro? Not sure. Um, I can't Google it without looking at the stream. I think it was something like Geraldine Ferraro, but that was way back. I'm not... Uh, George, I think you are wrong on AOC and the Dem Party. She's not a creation of the Dem Party, same as the Tea Party and Trump aren't a creation of the Republican Party. Well, give me some more there, George. And, and when I say creation, I'm not sure if I'm tracking with you, meaning I don't want to assume I understand if I'm wrong here, but I don't mean to say that they created AOC purposely, like let's get ourselves some wicked leftists, but I'm saying clearly her home is on the left. The, the, and, and the Democrat Party has created her in the sense that they've, they've been putting ideology over pragmatism for generations. They've been educating the population. They've controlled the media in many ways. They've controlled entertainment. They've been putting ideas out there. You know, the Democrats have aligned with socialism. They've aligned with 
uh, identity politics and Marxism. I don't know where else an AOC comes from. So when I say created, I don't mean they actively tried to create her. You know, I use the analogy of Frankenstein's monster. Dr. Frankenstein purposely created a monster. I think in the case of an AOC and an Ilhan Omar and some of these other folks, what I mean by create is they, they, they allowed them to really grow. They allowed them to thrive. They allowed them to, to gain a, a voice and to be strong. Um, and by doing that, they've created a monster. I think they've created a monster, which now they're like, oh, my God, what do we do? This, this is kind of getting out of control. We've let, the, we've let the riots go pretending they're not riots. We, we've, we've let BLM do its thing pretending that it's not a Marxist organization because it suits us and they're throwing all the money our way and they're, and they're pulling people to our side. But in the end, uh, the left will eat itself. Just like the famous pop will eat itself, the left will eat itself. Oh, Pauline says she's thinking of Amy Klobuchar. You know, the, yes, the problem with Amy is she's white. The second problem with Amy Klobuchar is, and she was the, uh, I want to say prosecutor in Minneapolis, maybe attorney general or prosecutor in Minneapolis or for Minnesota, I'm not sure which. But the problem for her is the cop that killed George Floyd, Amy Klobuchar, when she was prosecutor general or attorney general, whatever, She's the one that let that guy off the hook. She refused to prosecute this. This guy had all kinds of complaints against him. There was proceedings against him, and she let him off. So I think Amy Klobuchar, first of all, is white. I think that's, uh, in, in today's climate, not, not good enough. She's a white woman. She's part of the, part of the establishment. And then secondly, she's, she, in the current climate, has some blood on her hands that is going to be really tough to cleanse come time for debates and so on. So I think that Amy was more of a liability, or at least viewed to be more of a liability than, than an asset. Let's look at, so she seemed okay, didn't stand out, but she's white, so that counts against her lately. See, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. And, and then Pauline saying, oh yeah, I forgot about that, she's DOA, exactly, dead on arrival, I mean, she's just a non-starter. So that's my take on it. I think that Kamala is an interesting, and we're gonna do some Q&A in just a second here. I'm gonna wrap up the podcast and stick around if you're on the live stream, we'll do some Q&A and chit chat. But, but the thing about Kamala is that for me, there's a branding and a brand integrity issue. She, her brand story, her brand promise is one thing, but her actions are something else. And I just don't see her. This is, this is, a, this is a cynical candidate. This is a political operative that is not driven by principle, but is driven by power. If I'm to infer from her career and the decisions she's made and how she's behaved. This is a person that's driven by power, you know, and, and that's, um, that's what you get. You get these people at the top that that's what they want. And I just think that uh, Kamala is this kind of cynical choice. I think it's a defensive move by the party establishment on, on the left. And, and I think they're trying to fend off both the Trump team, the right, as well as moves from within their own party, a renegade movement, be them as they may. But um, that's what I think Kamala Harris represents. I, I, you know, is she electable? I think she is. Can, can Biden-Harris win? Absolutely. They can absolutely win. This, I think this election is up for grabs. Now, that said, I think that they've chosen a very unattractive political candidate. And I think uh, between Joe Biden, who is struggling as a senior, and there's this whole moral issue around that. And you've got someone like Kamala Harris, who's uninspiring and, and really kind of a nasty political operative, I think they're going to struggle come election time. Now, that all that said, partisans are going to vote for her. You're already seeing everybody circle the wagons. Oh, Kamala's great. Oh, thank God. It's historic. historic. It's historic because she's got the right skin color and the right sex. Uh, okay. If that's how you're making your decisions, uh, if we're voting uh, for skin color, then I guess that's how we're going to go forward. But I just don't think that this is a power team. And I think the Democrats had an opportunity to really put somebody on the ticket that was inspiring. And to Pauline's earlier comment, I think all of us on the right and the left know that whoever's the VP is going to end up being the president. If they win, that person's going to be president. And that cues them up for, for successive runs. And that's why I think Kamala is a choice by the establishment, because they don't want the AOCs running for president. They don't want that move from the ultra progressive left wing taking over the party. They're trying to battle to keep control of this thing and keep it establishment. Keep all that crony capitalism going, baby. That's how we make the money. We're not not by making this into some socialist uh, command economy that'll impoverish all of us. We just like to talk about that, but we don't want to do that because you can't get rich doing that uh, unless you're Joseph Stalin. That's a whole different story. 
Guys, thanks so much for listening. This is the Currency Podcast. I am your host, Mike Gast, and it is always a pleasure to have you along. I hope you enjoyed this. Do me a favor. If you enjoy this podcast and you haven't done so already, subscribe. You can find it on YouTube, as I've mentioned. Just go to Mike Gaston Live. Just search for Mike Gaston Live. You can subscribe there. You can join us for the live stream or watch it after the case. You can also find this podcast anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify, amongst others. Guys, I love you all, and I'll catch you in the next episode. 